This audio presentation is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Welcome to the Rand Corporation Media Conference Call on the latest developments between North Korea, the United States, and China, which have been dominating news headlines lately. My name is Korshid Samad, Senior Media Relations Officer for Rand, and I am joined on the phone by my colleague Lisa Sauders, Media Relations Officer, who is based in our Santa Monica office. The three participants that will be giving uh, brief statements now. Bruce Bennett is a Rand Senior International Defense Researcher specializing in Northeast. Asian military issues. His research has addressed issues such as future ROK military force requirements, the Korean military balance, counters to North Korean chemical and biological weapon threats in Korea and Japan, dealing with a North Korean collapse, potential Chinese intervention in Korean contingencies, changes in the Northeast Asia security environment, and deterrence of nuclear threats. Mike Mazur, is an Associate Director of Rand Arroyo Center's Strategy, Doctrine, and Resources Program, and a Senior Political Scientist at Rand. His research focuses on U.S. defense policy and force structure, East Asian security, nuclear weapons and deterrence, and judgment and decision-making under uncertainty. Andrew Scobell is a Rand Senior Political Scientist. His research focuses on China, with special attention to China's policy toward the Korean Peninsula and China's relationship with North Korea. After we make our statements, we're going to open up the lines and, and take some questions from the uh, participating reporters. Bruce, would you like to begin? Sure. Uh, we've had recent statements by David Albright, who is a nuclear expert, and by Sig Hecker, who used to be the director of Los Alamos, about the fact that North Korea may well have at this point in time, certainly by the end of 2016, as many as 30 nuclear weapons. Uh, that goes beyond what they potentially need for regime survival, and it puts us into a different world where we need to worry about their use of those weapons for coercion or other purposes. Uh, we've got to be concerned about how they might use weapons early on or in a conflict. Uh, but also how they might try to use them to create what is classically referred to as a stability-instability paradox, where they may feel more free to carry on uh, various kinds of provocations, limited attacks, because of their nuclear threat. Uh, this is a new world. It's only getting worse as the North Koreans build up those capabilities and so we need to be thinking about strategy and how we deal with the North Korean threat. And I'll stop there. Okay. Mike, would you like to make some comments? Um, I'll just add uh, to what Bruce said that the result of this situation, obviously, is that we, uh, as the administration has broadcast, we're coming to an end of the period where something called strategic patience sounds like it makes sense as the U.S. policy. The, the urgency to the situation is not necessarily because of the American general relationship with North Korea or South Korean policy toward North Korea. It's specifically because the North Korean nuclear arsenal is now crossing a number of thresholds that are deemed allegedly unacceptable by outside actors. Uh, and so this has created a situation where a number of outside uh, powers, notably the United States and China, are reaching what may be a tipping point in their policy toward North Korea earlier than they may have assumed a couple of years ago. Uh, everyone has wanted to avoid a moment like this where we had to deal with North Korea more uh, decisively than in the past. So the question for U.S. policy, obviously, is 
how to deal with that moment where North Korean nuclear ambitions are reaching a point that uh, we believe is becoming unacceptable. And the administration's statements over the last couple of weeks, I think, reflect a an effort to grapple with this in various potential ways, ranging from something very um, uh, immediate and elaborate, like a military strike, uh, to uh, more drawn-out policies of pressure and negotiation. But that's the moment we're in. It's It's a crisis because from a policy standpoint, we believe we have reached a moment uh, that we cannot allow the trajectory in North Korea to go on as it has been. Thank you. Andrew, would you like to add anything? You know, we seem to have a, a familiar pattern, uh, which uh, appears to be repeating itself in 2017. And what I mean by that is uh, when a new administration comes to uh, office in Washington, uh, they recognize that North Korea is a problem and they think it's time to solve it. So they conduct a policy review. It takes a month, several months. And at the end of that policy review, they come to the uh, conclusion that China is the solution. Uh, in other words, if, if, but if, China, if they can get China on board, then because China is the most influential, uh, seems to be the most influential country uh, uh, where North Korea is concerned, then, then we can make progress. So at that point, the administration uh, engages with China and the initial uh, interactions and feedback is positive. to get the sense that China's on board. Uh, and then uh, it's every time we're disappointed. Uh, the expectations of, of, of an administration are, uh, are, are, are dashed, and there's frustration. Frustration sets in frustration not only at the problem that my two colleagues have identified, but also frustration at, at what seems uh, to be a, a Chinese unwillingness or uh, inability uh, to uh, deliver on its uh, promises uh, uh, to the U.S. So why does China disappoint? I think uh, China uh, disappoints because uh, there's no incentive for applying maximum pressure on North Korea. And maximum pressure seems to be the, the term that's being bandied about as the replacement for the strategic patience uh, approach of the previous administration. Uh, for, for Beijing, uh, stability and peace are the highest priorities on the Korean Peninsula. It's not that denuclearization is not unimportant. Uh, it's that uh, the, the assumption in, in, in Beijing right now is that it's, it's just not realistic. It's not a viable policy uh, goal at this point, and they are increasingly concerned about the developments uh, in, in uh, south, south of the Yalu. Uh, and yet a, uh, the thought of doing something uh, to ratchet up uh, the pressure on North Korea, whether it's something that China does or something the U.S. might do, is very worrying, a very scary uh, prospect for Beijing because uh, things aren't great right now, but from a Chinese perspective, doing something to to uh, challenge the status quo can only make them get worse. So the fragile stability, uh, the status quo on the Korean Peninsula is, is, is preferred to the unknown of, of what might happen if there's uh, pressure, uh, uh, greater pressure applied, whether it's military, economic, or diplomatic on North Korea. So at the end of the day, uh, uh, China's, uh, can live, China can live with the uneasy status quo. Uh, it's its default preference. 
even though it, it too, like the United States, is growing ever more frustrated uh, with North Korea. Great. Thank you. Um, I think we're going to go to the open lines now. This is uh, Chris Cavus at Defense News. You, you all have laid out the situation that, that, that we're all aware of, but what are the options? I mean, right now, if the, you know, the, this administration has been trying to convince the Chinese, here we have, you know, we have uh, dinner at Mari Lago, and we're, uh, you know, our, our new president is learning all about the, the history of China and North Korea in 10 minutes, and it's all very complicated, he discovers. He's trying, his strategy is to try to convince the Chinese to intervene. If the Chinese aren't going to intervene, if the status quo is preferable to the unknown, then what, what action does the U.S. have short of a military strike? And then if there's a military strike, what, what options do we have in terms of that? Yeah, it's Andrew Scobell. I, it's hard to think of anything that would that would radically change uh, Chinese thinking about this and, uh, uh, and actions, uh, except in two. Uh, I, I can only think of two two possibilities. One is, uh, and this has worked in worked in the past. You you, you very much uh, go after very targeted sanctions. So, for example, putting the squeeze, financial squeeze on North Korea's elite. You can get China on board with that, but uh, you know that. You, know, you can change banks, you can, uh, but that can be quite effective at, at, at getting to cooperation with China and actually putting the squeeze on on the North Korean elite. Another another option, and I think this seems to be the uh, the option that the, the the current administration is trying, is to try and scare the, you know what, out of the North Koreans that uh, we are uh, this administration is prepared to use military options. And uh, you know, if that's believed, then it gives us some gives us some leverage with the North Koreans, and we may bring them uh, to to the table and get cooperation from the Chinese. This has worked once. It did work in 2003 uh, when uh, the then the, the Bush administration uh, signaled uh, uh, to uh, signaled that they would uh, were, were seriously considering a strike on North Korea. And remember, at that time. It looked like we were very successful in Afghanistan and Iraq, and people forget the, the, the term axis of evil, but North Korea was on that list, and it looked like North Korea might be next. My reading of the situation at that time, uh, China uh, jumped, leapt out of its comfort zone to initiate and, and, and follow through, hold this, host the six-party talks, and the, the uh, <clears throat> Bush administration at the time was very clever about Raising that you know level of concern about a possible strike, and at the same time encouraging the Chinese uh, to create this uh, uh, you know this this format uh, for a, a dialogue to address uh, the North Korean nuclear issue. This is Bruce Bennett. I would add, I think the Chinese have already taken some action. The coal import cutoff was a huge deal. Now, why did they do it? Well, they said at the time that they did it because they were getting close to the threshold of uh, coal that had been agreed to in the U.N. Security Council resolution late last year. But I think there was more. I mean, they did it, what, nine days? They announced it nine days after the killing of Kim Jong-nam. And the Chinese have been pretty clear with North Korea, as we understand it, that uh, the, the North Koreans weren't to threaten Kim Jong-nam. They were to leave him alone. And they didn't. 
So I think in part it's likely that the coal import cutoff was in response to the North Korean killing of Kim Jong-un's older brother, our older half-brother. So, and at first, the Chinese weren't exactly rigorous in enforcement. There were lots of reports of ships pulling into Chinese ports with North Korean coal and still distributing it. But after the summit with President Trump, there have been at least reports that ships were sent back to North Korea with coal. So the Chinese apparently did push enforcement. Uh, this was probably not a case of Xi Jinping saying, oh, I don't need to enforce this when he first announced it. I think it was probably the product of a Chinese system which has a degree of corruption and allowed the coal to be delivered initially with the appropriate price. But when Xi met with President Trump, he agreed to take some action and try for better enforcement. We don't know how complete that enforcement is, but at least it was some. The other option, which I think is neglected oftentimes when we talk about the carrier battle group heading to uh, Korean waters, is they don't only have offensive capabilities, they've got defensive capabilities. And they could potentially be used to shoot down North Korean missile tests. That hasn't been an announced policy, but Ash Carter in his last press conference before the previous administration left office said that the United States needed to think about that. And let's face it, Kim Jong-un is talking about being able to put nuclear weapons on ballistic missiles. Um, North Korea wants to be declared a nuclear power. If they were to demonstrate a nuclear weapon on a ballistic missile test, it would be hard for people to say North Korea is not a nuclear power. Um, but if North Korea does that, which China did with their fourth nuclear test, but over their western desert, if North Korea were to shoot a missile with a nuclear weapon out into the East Sea, Sea of Japan, or into the Pacific, um, they detonate a nuclear weapon like that, they're probably going to cause problems with some airliners, with ships out in that region. That's something that a U.S. president isn't going to want. It may well be that President Trump is posturing that battle group so that if North Korea launches ballistic missiles, they can be shot down. Um, may work, may not work, but it's an alternative. It's an option that the president has available that he may be preparing to exercise. Do you want to add anything, Michael? Well, just quickly, uh, Mike Mazur here. What I would say in answer to your question about what do we do, uh, the first question you got to ask is what are you trying to achieve? And um, the interesting thing about the vice president's comments yesterday uh, were that he said some lines that are remarkably close to what President George Bush said in 2002, which is they will give up their weapons or we will disarm them. And if he's looking, if the administration is looking for short-term comprehensive disarmament, um, that to me is beyond the bounds of the possible. So if what you're we have a long-term approach to North Korea that's perfectly sensible, which is kind of a regional version of the Cold War containment policy. Contain them, wait for the regime to transform, and in this case, wait for unification. Um, so it's not accidental that the word patience is part of a lot of our policies. What we have to do now, in my view, is find a way to buy time by taking off the most provocative and worst aspects of the North Korean nuclear development so that we can go back to this more relaxed approach of saying uh, we're going to await 
the transformation of the North Korean regime by a lot of uh, processes that are well underway there uh, within North Korea. So to me, the options are all about uh, strengthening deterrence, potentially strengthening our defensive capabilities in the region, and working with China to get North Korea to restrain the most provocative aspects of its nuclear development, deter the rest, and then remain under the uh, aegis of our general policy. This is uh, Robbie Grammer from Foreign Policy. Uh, I have two quick questions. The first is Mike mentioned that North Korea was crossing several thresholds, um, and I was wondering if you could just clarify what specifically what those thresholds are. And then the second one, I was curious if RAND has done any war games on if a North Korean conflict actually came to head and what that would look like. So the answer to the second question is we've done a lot of war games about Korean contingencies. Uh, the ones that have been conducted lately have not been sort of uh, focused really on the entire uh, peninsular war. They've been more focused on specific aspects of it. Uh, so I think the answer to that question is probably no, as you asked it. Uh, but we've been doing a lot of gaming on Korea. The answer to the first question in terms of thresholds, um, so if you look at the evolution of the North Korean nuclear program over the next just five, six, seven years, um, you're go there are going to be several critical developments. Uh, one is uh, potentially, as Bruce mentioned, a demonstrated capability to put nuclear devices on ballistic missiles, which there's a lot of speculation in the unclassified literature of whether they have that capacity now. There have been some open U.S. government statements that they believe the North Koreans may have that capability, but nobody knows for sure. So the expectation is that they will cross that threshold over the next several years. A second big threshold is the range of those weapons, obviously the potential deployment of an ICBM that could reach the continental United States, or even U.S. territories in Guam or, you know, Hawaii, Alaska, places that would place the United States at risk as North Korea is uh, threatening. But a third threshold, which I think is equally important for a variety of reasons, is that they're going to have enough weapons. So by 2025 or so, according to the current unclassified projections, North Korea could have as many as 100 deliverable nuclear devices. A North Korea with 100 nuclear weapons is a totally different kind of actor from North Korea with 5 or 10 or 15, even 20. They now have a nuclear force that in an operational sense would be very flexible and could really give some credence to the threats they're making now of an ability to disrupt U.S. operational plans in the region. So these are three examples. The ICBM is, of course, the one that the United States government has highlighted the most. But in a variety of different ways, a North Korea of the mid-2020s is going to be a very different nuclear challenge than it is today. I would add that I think there's yet another threshold. North Korea has been pushing on developing bigger yields of nuclear weapons. Uh, the 10 KT is certainly enough to do huge damage. But if they were to go to a 50 or 100 or 200 KT weapon, uh, that can triple or quadruple the amount of damage that they do. The risk of them doing that, testing that at their current nuclear test site is that's going to cause significant damage in China. Uh, the granite uh, underlying geology in the region transmits those shockwaves significantly. They could cause earthquakes or, more threateningly, 
the Mount Bektu volcano that uh, the Kim family claims is their heritage is only about 120 or 150 kilometers from the test site. A large yield weapon going off at the test site could cause an eruption of what is a dormant volcano. And there are many people in China who are worried about that prospect. That volcano in roughly the year 950 went off in what is believed to be a Krakatoa-sized eruption. And so uh, North Korea moving across those thresholds and demonstrating that capability are very threatening to China. Um, so this is uh, Matthew Hoosier with uh, the Kiplinger letter. Um, I was I wanted to ask about the potential for uh, cyber operations uh, in the future. Obviously, we've heard some speculation that they might have helped disrupt um, recent missile tests and maybe their potential in the future to, um, to kind of slow down uh, North Korea's nuclear progress. Uh, the problem with, uh, with cyber operations is that most of North Korea is isolated from the international Internet. So actually trying to get in and do things to North Korea it's not done by a traditional uh, hacking cyber operation. You're not going to be able to dial up the North Korean ballistic missile development facility. Instead, the kind of approach you would potentially have to take is to embed a virus or something like that in a component that North Korea might be acquiring for some part of its nuclear program. Have that virus put into it that when they install it in a missile, it has some kind of effect. Um, that's pretty tricky to do. Not impossible, could be done, uh, but it's not uh, as, as easy for us to do as it is for the North Koreans who can, their hackers can reach the international internet and potentially reach out and cause damage. If North Korea discovers we have done that kind of thing, one would expect that sooner or later they're going to retaliate and probably make the Sony hack look like it was small potatoes. Yeah, I agree entirely with Bruce. And I think, if, if a, for example, if a president were to ask, you know, what's, what's the status of this option? I mean, there's a lot that, obviously, in the unclassified world, we don't know about the capabilities we have and what they've been doing. But my best guess is the answer would be, this is something that can slow the program on the margins, but it does not, fundam it does not give you a fundamental answer to this rising threat. And so it's not, you know, it's one of those things that would be a component of a larger strategy that we do, but it is not going to be your default option to deal with this problem. Bless you. Is there another reporter that would like to pose a question? Chris, did you have another question you wanted to ask? Actually, remarkably, that was pretty much my uh, question. Is that uh, <laughs> oh, okay. uh, uh, okay. no? Really, was uh, was on the cyber war? You know, what might that have been? Something? Uh, I mean, you know, obviously we had we had uh, subterfuge um, going on during the uh, Iranian campaign, um, and might might something like that be going on? But I think you just answered that. Great. Is there? Is there anyone else on the line that would like to ask a question? I think it's interesting, though, that um, this is Chris Cavins again from Defense News. Nobody talks about South Korea and all this. Everybody portrays this as as a U.S. versus North Korea 
situation with China intervening. But where are the Russians? Where are the Japanese? Where are the uh, where's the Republic of Korea, which presumably would mostly disappear uh, during a, if there was some kind of nuclear exchange? Uh, people aren't talking about that. Is there a significance that people aren't talking about it, or is this just a, a bias of the international of, of, of media all around the world? Uh, there's incredible, this is Bruce Bennett again, there's incredible discussion among the security community in South Korea. The uh, worrisome part of the discussion is the push among what is so far still minority groups for the South Koreans to develop their own nuclear weapons because they have been less than competent during the Obama administration period that the nuclear umbrella would really be, could really be counted upon. So a lot of discussion, especially after the fifth North Korean nuclear test last September, quite a number of books written, unfortunately only in Korean, about the need to go in that direction. Um, but the South Korean administration so far has been very loyal to the U.S. government, the U.S. Uh, Defense Department, uh, in saying they weren't going to go in that direction. Um, and also a South Korean willingness to take in tremendous Chinese pressure on the THAAD issue in order for South Korea to allow the U.S. to deploy the THAAD missile defense system to counter the North Korean threats. Um, one could refer to the Chinese pressure as even economic warfare, and that has really had a dramatic effect on the South Korean presidential election, which will occur on May 9th, really shifted the position of the competitors in, in that because of uh, the strong South Korean reaction to the Chinese pressure. So, yeah, the, the South Koreans have been developing in ways which uh, the U.S. media really, I don't think, is adequately captured about the developments there. Well, and I would just add, this is Mike, that um, as Bruce is saying, you got this election coming up, and I think part of what you've seen so far is an artifact of their political moment. They've had an impeached president, President Park, and they're waiting for these new elections. So they just don't have um, a, a, a leader in place, really, who can stand up with the political uh, capital to, um, to take the lead on this. But if the election goes in the way we had long assumed, which, as Bruce says, is now shifting a bit, and you have a progressive party take the presidency of South Korea, that is going to be a very challenging moment. Uh, if you remember when George W. Bush came into office, um, he first get on, one of his first phone calls was a phone call with the, the Korean progressive president who talked about engaging North Korea. And George Bush literally covered up the, the handset and said, who is this guy and what the heck is he talking about? Because these people are evil. So if you have another moment like that where a, a, a tough line U.S. administration um, – gets crosswise with a new progressive uh, Korean government, uh, that will enormously complicate dealing with this problem, particularly, and something to watch for, if that Korean president comes into office and immediately says, I am starting a diplomatic process with North Korea to resolve this situation short of war, which I would expect him to do, that now you're going to have a situation where U.S. options could theoretically be significantly constrained because he's going to say – don't do anything precipitous while I'm starting to try to resolve this situation through negotiations. The United States is going to be very frustrated with that potentially. And those kind of tensions are going to be, I think, an increasing storyline if we get 
frankly, either of the main, the, the two leading candidates now, I think, are likely to take some version of that line. So it's going to be some very challenging moments for the U.S. ROK alliance at that time. Yeah, and just to add to this, is Andrew, uh, you know, Japan is very concerned about this situation, uh, worsening uh, North Korean nuclear uh, nu- nuclear threat, and so what you've seen, in, I think, in recent in recent years and months, is a renewed appreciation for the value of having an alliance with the United States on the, you know, whether you're, whether you're sitting in Seoul or in Tokyo. And, uh, and yet, uh, depending on how the election or, or how, what the new uh, administration in Seoul uh, decides, uh, you know, you could have, we're, we're now on the same, pretty much on the same page in, in three capitals, but that could change and you just have to go back a few more years to see you know, a Japanese prime minister that that sort of had his own policy towards North Korea and made actually made trips to Pyongyang. Uh, you know, you have a South. You know, going back uh, 17 years, uh, the South Korean leader visits Pyongyang for a summit uh, with his a North Korean counterpart. So right now, I think there's 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 an, uh, impressive solidarity, uh, alliance solidarity. Uh, but that could, you know, that could change um, depending on uh, depending on how how things go in the region and the domestic dynamics uh, in, in each country. And the biggest risk to uh, U.S. policy there, uh, the, at least one of the candidates in South Korea has been very clear that he would quickly reopen the Kaesong Industrial Complex. Mm-hmm. That's a violation of the UN Security Council resolution passed after the fifth nuclear test last year. Um, and so, or at least it would certainly appear to be, that's going to potentially raise some really interesting crisis in uh, alliance relationships. We can only imagine the tweets that would begin at that time. Yes. Uh, hi, it's Robbie from Foreign Policy again. Two more quick questions. Uh, first, any guesses on when the next nuclear test might be? Um, and then the second is, North Korea regularly threatens Washington to destroy Washington, Japan, and South Korea. Is there any signal you'd watch for in the future to say this time when they threaten it, it's different? I think we don't know on the nuclear test. I mean, let's face it. If they wait until after the rock presidential election and you get a new rock president in who wants to be compromising with the North, wants to open the Kaesong Industrial Complex, and they do a nuclear test, they will have fouled that up because the rock people will push back against that and say, no, no, we can't do that. Um, so they don't want to do it then. They could do it before the election, but even that could change the effects of the election. It could cause them some real problems with whoever the next president is. So they have some significant incentives not to do it, but they also have some incentives to do it. I mean, Kim Jong-un wants to demonstrate that he's a nuclear power. You know, here he is, a leader of a country which might generously be called in many ways a third-world country, and yet he's supposed to be empowered. He's supposed to be very capable. And the thing which he has to demonstrate his capability are nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles. So um, he has some incentives to continue these tests. His vice foreign minister announced uh, this week that uh, they plan to do nuclear or missile tests every week or every month into the future. Um, And that's what they did in 2016. They launched up until October 
two to four or five at least ballistic missiles every month. Uh, the nuclear test, they did two last year. That was very unusual for the history. Um, we just don't know what they're going to try to do, how much risk they're prepared to take, because we've got to assume the Chinese leadership are increasingly unhappy with North Korea, with their tests, with the killing of Kim Jong-nam. How far can they really go before China decides that it's a bigger risk than they had thought before? Yeah, I'd agree with everything Bruce said. This is Mike. My, my guess would be, uh, and, and I'll, you know, probably be proven wrong, but that you won't see the big steps, nuclear test or a claimed ICBM test, un at least until May 9th, and probably not till some period afterward until they get a sensing of whether they might be able to play this new South Korean regime for great benefit. They don't, as Bruce says, they don't want to do something. Now, in the meantime, I think you probably will see tests of smaller missiles, so SCUDs and other things that they will continue to fire off to make good their pledge of the last 24 hours or so. They'll keep testing every week, every month, and their magnificent deterrent uh, capacity will be demonstrated. But it'll be smaller missiles that won't be the things that we have identified as, as triggers for much more violent actions and things that the South Korean population can kind of write off as just typical military testing. Uh, and it, it, if I were them, I would kind of do that, lay low, see what the new South Korean administration brings my way, and if possible, then try to use that situation as a wedge uh, between South Korea and the United States and to forestall more decisive U.S. actions. Now, if that were to develop, you might get into a situation where somewhat indefinitely North Korea doesn't cross some of those thresholds because they, they begin to get economic benefits, as Bruce said, a reopening of uh, the Kaesong Industrial Complex and other things, and maybe China then relaxes some sanctions. Uh, things begin to ease up, and they don't want to endanger that. Um, so my guess in answer to that question would be not in, in, the, in the immediate term. Your question about threatening the United States and the region – um, they're very serious about it now. They're very serious about it, though, as a response to potential U.S. action. So uh, they do not, as far as we know, uh, in the unclassified world, have the ability actually to um, make good on the images they show their population of Washington burning to the ground. Um, they do have the capacity already to cause significant regional damage. And to me, the biggest unanswerable question would be if, 20 or 30 U.S. cruise missiles land on a North Korean missile production site, what happens the day after that or the hours after that? That would be an act of exceptional risk and one where a North Korean even partial response could then lead to South Korean retaliation, which begins to send you up an escalatory chain. So I think the bigger question to me is not in relation to these public posturings they're taking, which are very real but defensively oriented. It is, if the United States decides to cross its own threshold, what does North Korea do then? And I don't think anybody can know for sure. Just to add, add something, uh, you know, I think uh, Mike uh, touched at uh, the question of, you know, what does Kim Jong-un try, trying to achieve? Okay, he's showing that he's got this uh, robust uh, program, and that, I think that's important for his uh, uh, political legitimacy domestically. Uh, but at the end of the day, what 
presumably he, he expects that at some point he's he's going to bring uh, uh, come to the table with other country another country or other other countries, and so uh, you know having a, a large number of tests right now um, uh, may may set the, be setting the stage for that uh, because when you're when you're in negotiations presumably if you want to signal at least temporary good faith, you're going to hold off on that. Uh, but it is, a, it is an open question. What is he trying to achieve? I'll tell you one thing he's definitely trying to achieve, and that is you know, the North Koreans don't trust anybody. They don't even trust uh, the Chinese. So uh, the, the problem with North Korea's economic situation right now, and even diplomatic situation, is it's, it's solely reliant on, on China. So what ideally uh, what what Pyongyang would like is to at some point in the not too distant future improve relations with some other countries South Korea Japan the U S so that there is access to trade and 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 goodies from from other countries now if you're sitting in in Beijing um, you know the, the level of frustration and ire directed at North Korea is I would say it's unprecedented. Um, you know, North, uh, as Bruce mentioned earlier, you know, the, the execution, assassination of, of Kim Jong-nam was, was uh, you know, a personal insult to, to Xi Jinping. And uh, there have been many others, but the, the timing of some of these nuclear missile tests have, have been, you know, timed uh, to guarantee uh, anger and outrage in, in, in China. And yet at the end of the day, what are the Chinese willing to do? I mean, I think the, the They've got a larger geostrategic calculus, which includes Northeast Asia. So while that this, there's tremendous frustration uh, with what uh, North Korea is doing, there's a reluctance uh, to do it, to push back hard for, you know, for the reason I already mentioned. They're afraid of what the consequences uh, might be. But they also are concerned that uh, you know, this, this could uh, worsen um, the, the, the balance of power in, in in, Nor in Northeast Asia against China. So last last point, you know, so a lot of people, most people in China are very angry and, and, and strong, have a strong dislike for North Korea, and that includes the public. And on Chinese equivalent of Twitter and, and other places, you see uh, regular criticisms and, and, and of, of North, North Korea and then implicit and sometimes explicit criticisms of Chinese policy. So what's, what's, what's the reaction? The reaction of the leadership has been to publicly say, yes, we understand you have a right to be angry, but you know, we're constrained by our, our larger uh, strategic uh, interests uh, to, do, to, to doing more. And, oh, by the way, it's not our fault. They point the finger. They like to outsource the problem to Washington, just like um, the Chinese feel Washington tries to outsource the North Korean problem to China. Well, that was quite enlightening and very, very interesting. Do we have any other uh, questions um, that the journalists on the line would like to pose at this point? I have one more. Uh, Chris Cavus again, Defense News. And this is something that, um, frankly, people have been talking about. Um, the North Korean leadership is, is viewed as a real dangerous wild card. I think everybody would agree with that. Who knows what they'll do? Um, 
you know, are they crazy enough to actually blow everybody up? There's a, there's an element that thinks the current U.S. president uh, might be crazy enough to just attack them and start everything. And there's so it's sort of this, you know, uh, Mel Gibson kind of, you know, my guy's crazy, just as crazy as your guy element that is starting to, there's def, definitely an issue out there. It's definitely something that's there. And I'd like you all to comment about that. I mean, is that, is that, is that big, do you see that becoming a real element here? Does it begin to be a factor in all these discussions that the U.S. is not necessarily all that calculating and that who knows, we may just do it? Um, does that, does that become a real factor? And that, that's the question. Uh, this is uh, Mike Mazar. Um, I, just let me say a couple things about it. So one is um, the the presumption that North Korea is irrational is something we should discard. North Korea, the North Korean regime and leadership has been anything but irrational. Uh, they've been uh, highly rational in their pursuit of various uh, tools of statecraft to keep their regime in place. That's their main goal, and uh, that's what they want. And I think. That gives us a clue, actually, for the future of U.S. policy, which is um, this is not a regime that uh, randomly throws bombs around and risks starting wars. This is a regime that wants to stay in power, which gives classic deterrence a strong starting point because we have something to threaten if they take precipitous action. So we can begin with the idea that in, in, in a lot of uh, scenarios, we can actually deter what they might do. Now, the, from the U.S. standpoint, you know, it's not the first time that a U.S. administration has tried to ratchet up the tension in order to create bargaining leverage with not only North Korea, but also China. So there's nothing unusual, I would say, about that general strategy. Um, and presumably, over the coming days and weeks, you will see the public statements on U.S. policy kind of narrow down to a single consistent message. Um, the question, though, is what are you trying to get out of your leverage if you, in, in fact, do create worries on the other side, that you might do things that in the past a U.S. government wasn't willing to do? What do you then ask for, and what's your approach to get where you want to go at that point? Um, the there are reports the administration has conducted a Korea policy review. They may well have that kind of idea of where they want this leverage to go. But the posturing on its own uh, will only achieve something useful if it's used toward that kind of an end. And of course, the danger is, as has been widely reported over the last few days, if we make threats or state conditions that are not then met, we end up weaker than we started. I would add that we do have to take a look at Kim Jong-un. I, I agree exactly with Mike. This is Bruce Bennett. Um, that the Kim regime has actually been very rational. The concern, though, that I would have is the killing of Kim Jong-nam suggests a degree of paranoia and instability in the regime. Uh, according to defectors that I have talked to, back in 2011 and 2012, uh, Kim Jong-un got rid of everybody who even knew his elder half-brother. They just cleaned out people, killed them, their families sent off to the gulag. There's no Kim Jong-nam faction in North Korea. It doesn't exist. So why did he think it was necessary to kill his elder half-brother? And what degree of paranoia do we get from that? We don't know. We don't know how unstable the regime is. Um, and I do have to ask, 
if you were a three-star general in North Korea, knowing that your bosses have been purged, do you want to be promoted? Because that ultimately is a measure of the degree of stability that many of the leaders may feel in North Korea and is suggesting some of the rationale behind some of the senior defections we're seeing. We just don't know. And so we do have to look at this situation with a fair degree of risk and risk management that we need to take. So we're wrapping up this call in just the next few minutes. Does anyone have a, a, a last question? This is Matthew Hoosier with Kiplinger again. Um, I wanted to quick ask um, what the U.S. could potentially offer um, the North Koreans that you think might get them to back down short of pressure um, if we were trying to sweeten the pot with some incentives. I've heard the idea of like uh, curtailing certain uh, U.S. South Korean military exercises as one potential suggestion. So just be curious what you guys think about that. I'd say quickly, a, a first question is what you're trying to get from them. So, you know, in the past, a lot of these negotiating proposals have talked about offers we would make in order to get the North Koreans to give up their nuclear arsenal. That's not really on the table now. So to me, the only approach is sort of a staged thing where initially you're going to want something fairly limited. Like, for example, do not conduct an ICBM test, do not conduct a nuclear test, uh, cut back some of the rhetoric, uh, no new military provocations uh, involving South Korea. So a limited set of constraints that North Korea would agree to, for something like that, I think we could offer some fairly modest relief from sanctions, maybe something like uh, going to the UN to get a modification to allow the Kaesong Industrial Complex to open, some other things like that that would give them a little bit of a benefit. Um, and then, again, it's, it's partly about buying time. So if we can get something like that in place, then a new progressive South Korean government is potentially in talks with them that we can support and be part of looking for some more significant confidence-building measures down the line. North Korea is probably going to come into some initial talks asking for things like an end to the exercises, um, a, a, a promises of a timetable of a U.S. withdrawal, recognition, peace, treaty. peace treaty, recognition of them as a nuclear power, all of these things as part of an ultimate settlement way down the line for total disarmament, you could imagine those. But as short-term steps, we're going to probably have to fight off some of those more significant demands and just give them some smaller sweeteners, maybe mostly around economic issues. This is Andrew. Lastly, just because we've jettisoned, uh, the U.S. has jettisoned strategic patience doesn't uh, mean that uh, we should be uh, totally impatient. Uh, uh, being, being smart, uh, um, looking uh, for openings, uh, working with our allies, uh, but not being in a, in a rush. Certainly that's easy, to, that, that's easy to say and very hard to do when you see uh, what we've been talking about, a, a North Korean uh, nuclear arsenal that's literally in, growing, by, growing by the day, the day and week. Uh, but rushing in is... Uh, uh, too much haste is a recipe uh, for, uh, uh, you know, bad things, worse things happening. And the other thing I would say, this is Bruce again, um, we tend to make agreements which are reversible. I think we need to be thinking about options which are not reversible. For example, asking North Korea to give up four nuclear weapons to the IAEA. Um, 
the intelligence find from that would, of course, be tremendous. But it would also give them the potential for getting themselves recognized by many countries as a nuclear power because people would say, well, those were real nuclear weapons. They could have really gone on ballistic missiles. But they would have given up four. It's not reversible. Uh, everything else we tend to ask for is reversible and has regularly been reversed. And many of the American people are dissatisfied with North Korea because we have to pay twice or three times for the same kind of outcome. Um, let's try to find some irreversible actions that we can take that will gain us at least some degree of reduction of the threat we're already seeing. Well, on that note, I want to thank uh, everyone for participating today and um, also to thank the, the reporters who've joined us um, for this very enlightening call. We bid you all farewell and a good day. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.